for tuning in to this special edition of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie, and I am your host. I decided to host a roundtable discussion about Black women in corporate America. In the roundtable, it features guests such as Joy, Karan, KB, Tora, and Kristen. They talk in a really great and healthy discussion about their experiences in the workplace and ways that they've had to combat it in their own personal challenges. So take a listen, and if you have a personal experience that you wish to share, leave a comment on our SoundCloud and let us know what it's been like for you working in corporate America. Welcome to this segment of the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. We are going to have a special discussion by demand, in fact, we every now and then will tweet out and ask you guys, what kind of topics would you like to hear on the podcast? Well, this one was brought to our attention, and our topic tonight is being a black woman in corporate America. So I have a panel here to discuss all things related to it. I have Karan, KB, Tora, Kristen, and Joy. Thank you, ladies, so much for coming on. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yes. So where do we begin? (laughs) Um, So, I mean, being a black woman in corporate America comes with its own set of challenges. um, And I'm sure each of us here has a story to tell. So I want to start with going back a little bit when you got your education and specifically speaking, your college degree. In each of your personal circumstances, did you find that having a college degree was helpful in your journey into your career or did it really not matter? And we can go in the same order. Um, we can go in the order of Quran, KB, Tor, Kristen, and Joy. For me, it didn't matter. Um, I was um, extremely um, bright and I graduated high school very early. So I had a choice to make because I had a number of colleges that I had been accepted to Um, but I was also a teenage parent. So I had some decisions that I needed to make. And one of them was that I needed to work regardless. Um, me being pushed into, well, I'd never stopped working. I started working when I was 12 and I, I never stopped. But as a creative, I was, I was introduced to corporate America as a creative during a time when in IT, the self-taught were king. And during the time when um, I also had a trade as uh, I'm a beautician by trade. So I had my cosmetology license. I was doing hair and makeup in a very prestigious uh, salon and, and made a grip made of, I made so much money when I was 16, 17, 18 years old legally. <laughs> Whew, I miss those days. But um, in my case, because I was self-taught in IT and because I was a creative working in the beauty industry, uh, it's required to continue education all the way through. It's required. So I added school into the mix and eventually I went into the Navy, which introduced me to a whole different kind of workforce. But for me, it did not make a difference because I made more money than anybody I knew with a degree. What I didn't understand and what we're not taught is about quality of life, because the people who I did know that had degrees were 
chasing the dollar so hard that they had no lives. They would work 12, 15 hour days at jobs that they didn't want, places they didn't want to be in, in fields that they did not study for, as opposed to me deciding this is where I want to be, this is what I want to do, and focusing my energy on being able to do that, even being introduced in the beauty industry to corporate America, because I then went to the education side um, of beauty. And it was a very different place to be, first of all, going from a service professional to an educator, an education professional, um, working with a number of different uh, global brands. Um, I would usually be the only black face in the room, if at all. And that was probably more difficult. And because I was so young, I was down for whatever. I really was. But I didn't, it didn't, I didn't have the same kinds of stress as my peers who went straight to college and had their degrees and then had work choose them versus them choosing their work. Um, yeah. So I actually, um, I'm going to say yes and no. So um, similar to Karan, like I graduated from high school really early. So when I went to college, um, I always knew I, I was a STEM kid growing up, super interested in science and tech, not so much math, but um Science and tech always. And so I, I knew going into college um, that that would be my focus, the sciences in particular. So, you know, I went to college, I went to undergrad. And um, when I got out of undergrad, we were in the height of a really, really bad recession. So to be quite honest, um, getting a job at that time just wasn't really feasible. Like, um, it, it was so bad that finding a job, especially one in my field, right, was like not an option. So I went to grad school and after grad school, um, because I was so young, I actually took some time off. So I took some time off. I traveled. I felt like I had spent my whole life um, going to school, which was actually true. And uh, when I got out, I was still looking for a job. The recession was still pretty bad. So I ended up um, becoming a college professor just because um, it was something that I could get into. And um, it was something that my where my degrees were actually useful and um, I still wanted something a little bit more. I wanted to work in healthcare. That was actually my passion, just helping people through healthcare. So um, I used my degrees to take um, kind of an entry level position at a biotechnology firm that dealt with healthcare related issues. And then I just used that to get into healthcare. So to a degree, I guess, yes, my, my degrees were useful for that initial first job. And um, as a professor and then also working in, in the biotech industry. But like once I moved to healthcare, my degrees kind of became less and less more effective. I mean, they were more of a formality in a sense. Like, you know, a lot of the jobs I've had since then and working um, currently in healthcare consulting, they require you to have degrees. But I have noticed that like uh, amongst my peers, our degrees are just so varied, but our passions are all the same, right? So um, so like, I always say that healthcare is kind of like my daytime passion. And then, um, I've always been a creative. And so, um, that's also been another passion of mine. And so even just working, um, in media 
and uh, podcasts and I've worked in, in PR. I've always done that in addition to my nine to five job. So um, obviously my degrees were completely useless working for PR firms and working for radio stations and doing podcasts and, and writing for um, different publications. But it's something that I enjoy so much that I don't mind doing it. Now, if you guys want to help me find the perfect balance... <laughs> to get paid to do both, I'm all ears, right? <laughs> or even to just transition completely. But yeah, so I, I'd say yes or no. I think, you know, the older that I get, the more I'm kind of like, oh, I would have told younger me to just follow your heart, start your own business, do what you want to do, maybe, you know. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to college. Uh, but, you know, kind of do what you always want to do, but know that it's going to take a lot of hard work and determination, and you're going to encounter a lot of crazy people. So just be on the lookout for that. College degree or no college degree. <laughs> um, I agree completely with um, what you said, actually. I wish I could go back in time and, like, tell myself, you know, just pick. Just college is about finding what you like, you know, and working towards that. Because when I got to college, well, for one, um, I got – full scholarships to, um, to school. So it was obvious that I was going to take that money and go to school with it. Um, so I got there and my advisor, um, basically just like signed me up for his major, like political science. And I've never liked political science, history, any of it, but I was just like, okay, I'm going to just let this old white man just like, (laughs) He seems to know what he's talking about. I'm going to just go with it. And it took two semesters of hating all of my classes for me to be like, oh, this isn't this isn't for me at all. So eventually I got um, I got into psychology and I really loved it. But parallel to that, I'm realizing that I also have like this interest in tech that I've always had my entire life. But that's not what I'm going to school for. So I end up with a bachelor's degree in psychology and like years of experience working, fixing phones and computers on the side. Like I had a work study (laughs) job where I was literally um, taking up the school. I, I went to Wake Forest. So the school gives you a laptop when you get there. And I worked my work study job was <laughs> in the computer um, place where you if your computer is broken, you come drop it off. And I that's what I did. And then I had a series of jobs after that that were basically the same or more advanced than that and a psychology degree. <laughs> um, so once I graduated, my degree was extent like my scholarship was extended so I could go my master's degree doctor degree would all be covered but under a certain number of only a certain number of degrees were offered and what I had set my heart on was clinical therapist no that was not offered so I end up in a master's degree (laughs) a master's degree program for something that I didn't really want to do but I'm like it's a free degree I'm going to take this free degree and go with it. (laughs) Um, And once again, a year into it, I'm just like, I hate all of this. I hate all of these people. I'm going to just take a break for a while. Like my grades were okay. It's just, I was like, I don't know if it's worth it. And I mean, I had, I was working at the time. I had a pretty good job, but I hated the job as well. So I'm still 
right now I'm going back to school and I'm just going to pay for it. I'm paying for it myself, but I'm still at the point where I'm working a job that I don't, isn't particularly something that I wanted to do. And I have a degree that isn't necessarily in what I was excited about, you know? So, <laughs> so yeah, it's, I, along with that, I do some writing. I do some, I have some online businesses and it's finding that I do some podcasting. It's finding that balance of what makes you happy and finding ways to profit from that or finding, you know, finding out how other people that are good at that are profiting from that and working towards that. And nobody told me that. <laughs> wow. Um, I, I actually just celebrated my 20th anniversary out of school this summer. And I guess I was lucky that um, I graduated during a time where you didn't necessarily have to go and get a, um, a master's degree right afterwards. Um, you know, I, I kind of moved on a dare to DC, didn't know anybody. And um, even though um, I'm not necessarily working in my degree, um, I use, I use aspects of it. And that actually, you know, I, you know, worked at a professional newspaper through college, actually wrote for them um, my senior year um, in high school and then uh, all through college. And then I worked at a daily newspaper on campus. And so um, just my reporting skills and um, talking to people and having no shame whatsoever actually helped me out. <laughs> transition into I actually work for a nonprofit, um, which is in DC. It's either you work for a law firm, you work for um, you work on the Hill or you work for a nonprofit. That's <laughs> like those are like the big threes. And um, so I always, you know, tell especially the interns that come in um, that we deal with with this summer, you know, one of the first things I tell them is, you know, you may not, you know, when you graduate, don't take your degree literally, you know, be creative, um, especially when you're at the age where you don't necessarily, you're not married or you don't have children and you, and you can be flexible, you know, just to kind of find what you want to do. Um, I, I will say I've been lucky. I think I may have had maybe two jobs that were like almost close to putting me in therapy. Um, but I, you know, I, really make a, a very concerted effort to have, um, you know, a very defined line between work and life, work-life balance. Um, I know my current job, I've been in it for about two years. Um, thankfully, that's like a big thing with them. Um, we don't have Blackberries. We're not required to do work um, when we leave the office or, you know, at the end of the night. So, you know, when I shut down at five o'clock, I shut down unless or even on the weekends, unless it's something that I choose to do. So I do find myself um, during the busy times, maybe I'll work a couple hours on the weekend, but I'm not foul about it because it's my choice and I just want to get something done. Um, and like I said, it's 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 been interesting and just hearing the horror stories from some of my friends who are 
more in corporate America where they are working nonstop, especially, you know, with law firms and and stuff like that, where all of a sudden your whole lives are, are gone because you need to do your hourly you, you need to make the hours for the week to prove that, you know, your position is is worth having is is way too stressful. I'm at the point now where I'm just like, nah, it's quite all right. <laughs> so this is Joy. Um, I think my perspective is a lot different um, because based on everyone else's stories, I think I'm the baby of the group. I graduated college in 2013. So ah! I, I would be I would be under what Jamie just recently called Young Twitter. So yes, definitely <laughs> a part of Young Twitter. Um, but I, I went to business school. I went to a PWI. I went to an Ivy League school. So um, the lilies of the lilies of whites uh, were around me. Um, I don't so um, I don't really care. I'm gonna say it. So I went to Wharton undergrad. Um, I uh, was a marketing major there. The amount of black girls that graduated with me, there was eight of us, including me in my graduating class of wow. maybe 500. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the ones that really were trying to skirt and like be like, oh, we're not really about black folk. I found them, too. I was like, you're not going to hide from me. Um, and so uh, I was like, you're going to you're going to you know, you're going to accept this love. You have no choice. Um, and so uh, when I started, uh, it was a standard thing, especially at Wharton, to be a finance major. Um, and I believe it's still about 65 percent of people do finance. And I took my first finance class. And I felt like the literal embodiment of a Mr. Crab, that Mr. Crab meme, where everything's just spinning and he doesn't know what's going on. That was me in that finance <laughs> class. I'm so stressed. Um, and so I talked to my parents about it and I was like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do finance and be a banker like everybody else. My parents were like, okay. And I was like, oh, I think I'm going to go in marketing. And they were like, okay. I got lucky. My parents are, are young because they had me when they were um, young. So they're very much hippies at heart. So they're big on what makes you happy. So mm-hmm. um, oh, I was a marketing major. I was a Japanese studies minor. I graduated in 2013. Um, and I went to a traditional um, uh, job and working in corporate. Um, and I think we're a fortune 500. I'm not sure. Um, we're, we're a fairly big global company. And um, it's always weird from that perspective because you know, in that moment, you get, like, really woke, and you think about, like, you know what? This job didn't accept people that look like me, like, in its wow. inception. Like, I helped build, like, my ancestors helped build the buildings of this office, and it, like, really freaks you out when you think about it in a way. Um, so I was battling a lot of that for my first year. I did the whole, like, uh, working in Midtown in New York, you know, your cute dress with your running sneakers, like you're going to be on the train, your coffee in your hand and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got, frankly, I just got fed up with the bullshit. I was like, you know what? I've realized that while it's been a great foundational piece and in kind of my generation, that college degree is important just because the way the economy is set up um, overall, it realistically a, a, a bachelor's degree. And I, all I have is a bachelor's degree currently um, it's as useful as a high school diploma, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. depending on what field you're going into. Um, it's now become that like your higher degrees, so your MBAs or your MPHs or anything of that nature, any type of master or above is kind of like your undergrad degree to get your proper payment and, you know, proper due. Um, despite all of that, um, I've been able to learn some some really interesting things in, in the place that I'm at. But also know, and I think a lot of it has to do with being part of, again, Young Twitter, is I know that um, I have the the uh, privilege to be fluid in terms of 
I'm not boggled down. I'm not married. I don't have kids. Um, so I don't, and especially when we talk about like millennials, the common thing is, is that they don't feel like they have to be in a certain space. So I don't feel uh, relegated to a certain state or I don't feel relegated to a certain position. If this stops working for me, I have no problem being like, all right, well, I'm out and like dipping. Um, I think that has been the beauty of it. Um, but there's obviously other downsides to it as well. And obviously we'll talk about it later as the uh, episode progressed, but it's it's been a very interesting learning experience, especially when you're talking about overall um, microaggressions and what that is and, and how do you deal with kind of, you know, you hear that HR term, which I feel like we all hear is like, you should bring your whole self to work, which we all know is <laughs> bullshit. Uh, that's not real for black women, (laughs) like real self. You don't want, you don't want, uh, the real me. I'll make you very sad. Um, and so, you know, how do you, how do you navigate those waters and how do you kind of find a a good balance between, you know, making your money, but also not feeling like you're losing large chunks of who you are. Um, so that's my experience. So for me, um, I got my degree in 2002, so I guess I'm not part of young Twitter, um, <laughs> uh, for, for my undergrad at Norfolk State University, and it was in mass communications and journalism. And my focus was actually on general broadcasting because I wanted to work in television. So oddly enough, the, the degrees that I got when I was in school, it didn't really require Um, any sort of certification or degree. You don't have to have a degree to work in television. You don't have to have a degree to work in film. Um, So when I graduated in 2002, the first thing I did was apply at all of the local TV stations. I applied for TV stations outside of my market. And of course, I got rejected. And then I decided, you know what? Well, uh, since nobody's going to hire me right now, I'm still living with mom. I'm just going to go ahead and pursue my further education and go for my master's. So went directly back to school. And in 2005, I got my master's in film. And film was something that has always been of interest to me because I actually went to a vocational school in high school for TV production. And I shot like short films during my time there. Like they would lease camera equipment out to the students and I would shoot these short films. So I've always had a passion for it. And when I went to school and and got my film degree, um, I did get an opportunity to work on some feature films. I moved out to New York for a while and worked on Spider-Man 3 and I Am Legend and No Reservations. Um, So it was a really cool time. And I was lucky because at that time, Bloomberg had passed this incentive to make it very cheap to film in New York. So there was a lot of gigs that were happening But once the work stopped and the checks stopped coming in, I had to find a quote unquote real job. And that got really hard. And I managed to find like just this regular finance job in New York City. But um, unfortunately, the 2008 economic collapse happened (laughs) and I got laid off. So one of my biggest regrets is not getting an internship while I was in school because You know, you can get all of this great experience, but I feel like if I had gotten an internship, I would have had an opportunity to get a job at a TV station or work for a film studio where it's like regular, consistent work as opposed to the kind of freelancing work that I was doing as a production assistant working on um, these feature films. So that's like one of my biggest regrets, but they don't really tell you 
that in order to do these internships that you need to be financially prepared to take care of your own costs and expenses. And that was the biggest disappointment for me because the one time that I did try to apply for an internship, in which case they were like, we would love for you to come out here and work for us, was when I had applied to work at the Dr. Phil show. And um, they were like, yeah, we, we want you, but it's not paid, so just keep that in mind. Well, unfortunately, I didn't have the money to fly out 3,000 miles across the country. I didn't have the money to find a place to stay in Los Angeles. I had no family there, no kind of ties. So I, I didn't have the benefits as some people that have a different financial, um, you know, advantage, I guess, so to speak, they could be able to do those kinds of things. So it, it was an unfortunate situation for me, but, um, you know, I, I'm glad that I had the experience that I have working in film um, because it really gave me some insight to the industry. And I did channel a lot of that into my work as a blogger with reviewing films. And also I had an independent a blog about the independent film scene and I was able to network and meet with a lot of filmmakers. Um, so that was really cool. And then later on, I decided to go back to school, which is kind of crazy, but I decided to do it anyway um, and get my master's degree in marketing. And I, I got like an executive graduate certificate is what it's called. But I went to Strayer and got my marketing degree. And that has been very helpful in me being able to use those tools and skills to do a lot of the work that I'm doing with Black Girl Nerds with respect to the Internet marketing, the social media marketing, um, coming up with press kits, ad kits, things like that. So I've been able to use it in that way, but just haven't been able to make a career out of it yet. <laughs> um, so I'm still working on that part. But yeah, I mean, my college degree has worked in some ways, but in ways that's kind of benefited me personally from just the work that I do on a freelance basis, not anything that has helped me professionally because my day job, I work at a law firm and I don't really use a lot of those skills except for the marketing stuff. I use a little bit of that, the law firm, but um, none of the skills that I learned in undergrad or graduate school have I um, been able to use in my current day job. That's oh, kind of been the struggle. Prayer. Yay. That's where I used to teach. Yes. Strayer University represent. <laughs> so, okay. What has been your personal experiences in the workplace as a woman of color or just overall, not necessarily specific to race or gender? Do you want to share an anecdote about your experiences in the workplace? Same order. Let's see my experiences in the workplace. Um, I've always kind of looked at my career, um, it's not compartmentalized, but I've worked in, in beauty and media and corporate simultaneously. So in my experience in the beauty industry, in the salon world, I was mostly around gay white men. And that is a really interesting dynamic, um, especially being a woman of color. Um, I was often in so many environments where I was the only one who was there at that level, um, we all know that we're not represented in beauty. We don't see it. Uh, we only see it on that little tiny half aisle if you're in a store. <laughs> um, we don't see it from our major manufacturers, not with shampoo, not with nail polish, not with, you know, body wash. We don't see ourselves. 
So to see me in a training environment as the lead was startling to a lot of people. I would often show up to um, to a class. I worked with Paul Mitchell for a very long time, for almost 15 years. And I showed up to, to lead a class at one of our conferences and uh, it was in a hotel ballroom. And, you know, the people there assumed that I was there to refill their water. Hmm. Because my name was on the was on the board, but my face was not. And for a very long time in, in the beauty world, when I started getting published and when I started winning competitions, um, and I'm not talking about, you know, we're not talking about Battle Royale, we're not talking about Atlanta, I'm talking about larger competitions on a, on a, a, a scale that covered the mainstream part of the industry. Um, when I started winning those awards, I would never send in a photo of myself. Hmm. What I noticed was if I did not show my face and I showed up as who I am, it was a lot easier received. If I did show my face before I showed up, it was a lot more likely to be canceled. So mm -hmm. then, you know, I was also in, in the military for 14 years in the Army and the Navy, and that was extraordinary. It was an extraordinary experience for so many reasons, but one of the most extraordinary things about military life is sexism and racism runs rampant. It is in your face. It is not a secret. Um, <laughs> and a lot of women still suffer from the harassment that they received, you know, while in military service. And, you know, the military is nothing more than a reflection of what our society is at large. So we had our blue collar jobs and we had our white collar jobs as well. But I would say overall, my, I was also an entrepreneur. I started my first company when I was 16 years old. And I think that was the one thing that kind of kept me going for all these years is that I knew I had something of my own that needed to be funded. So I might stay at a job a lot longer because <laughs> I needed more money to put into the things that I wanted to do. And when you go to a job every single day and you're facing every single day um, sexism, you're facing racism every day, people telling you they don't want you to touch them. Um, they'll tell you to your face they've never seen a black person up, up close before, especially in the, oh, the South, honey, the South, Lord Jesus. Um, those are very difficult things to face every single day. I remember going to work and sitting in my car for an hour just because I didn't want to go inside and face it another day. It was such a constant in life because it was every single day. That doesn't mean I didn't have great experiences too, but it was always there. The sexism and the racism were always, always, always there. When I was able to strike out on my own or represent myself as my own company, it was a lot different. I was received a lot differently because it was my name on the door or it was my name on on, on the, uh, the marquee. Um, they needed what I had. And in that regard, it mattered less where it came from than it did at work. At work, it was always something that I was the scapegoat for. It was always something that, that, um, that would have to be addressed in the office because of inappropriate behavior or inappropriate speech or just inappropriateness altogether. And I was belligerent. I was not, um, I was not shy. I'm, I'm 
still not shy. But I was not, I was like really bad. I was really, I would pop off in a heartbeat before it was even called popping off. I was popping off. Um, I had a difficult time with authority that didn't earn respect. I had a difficult time with doing a job and being humiliated, which happened a lot, especially in the military. So it drove me to stay connected to personal projects and businesses of my own because it, it was just my little corner of the world for myself and to myself where I didn't have to worry about, you know, all those other things. It was a lot of pressure being a woman of color in a corporate environment, a lot of pressure. And so, I mean, even body image came into into play, you know, so it was a trip. Okay. Um, KB oh. here. So, well, I actually, um, because I have a unique first name, which I won't say here, but I have a unique first name. Um, I actually have only met like one other person with it. And um, because, you know, I was so young, I've always been at least two years ahead. Um, and just being an African-American woman, my mom always told me just kind of growing up that I'd have to work triple, quadruple as hard as anyone else just because of all these factors. And so just growing up and watching her struggle through the workplace, I, I kind of knew that once I, I, I kind of walked in the door, I knew a little bit about what to expect. But I will say this, I, I've had probably, I'd say three, you know, really significant jobs over the course of my life so far. And um, what I wasn't prepared for in the second one was to have a manager who looked like me, another person of color, be the worst manager. Mm-hmm. And like mm-hmm. me having just having someone. I mean, I, I don't think that like I really wish maybe I would have had this conversation um, just with my mom when I was younger, because I just never expected someone to look like me to be such a challenge. And yeah. this manager was harder on me, I think, than I've ever been on myself. And from the moment I got there and nothing was ever right and nothing could be rectified. And, you know, putting in, um, you know, I think Karan mentioned earlier, working 12 and 15 hour days, that was mm-hmm. coming home, working nonstop um, to the point where like my family and my friends started to notice a change in me. And I started to notice a change in myself which I really didn't like. I mean, honestly, like spiraling into depression and, you know, just really not being myself, not being my lighthearted, normal, positive self, really being negative, being very secluded, not wanting to hang out with anyone or see anyone, you know, once I got off of work or I came home or even on the weekends, like I really just kind of um, spent a lot of time alone because I was carrying the weight of this job and, carrying kind of things that this manager said to me in everything. And so, you know, during this time, I actually, because, you know, I mentioned before that I, I work in media also. And, and for me, it's also these passion projects are just something that I need. Also, they help me decompress, but I love them. Mm-hmm. And I even stopped doing that. Like I, I just was only working this one job and I felt like I didn't have the energy to do anything else. And this person was pushing me and not just me pushing everyone on the team to the point where we would all go to lunch and we would be exhausted. And we were like, we have to leave. I mean, I literally woke up one day and I was like, I cannot stay here any longer. I don't think that I can last as a human being if I stay in this environment with this person pushing me. And I think that they thought that they were pushing me um, in a direction to where I'd be an even stronger person 
person when I left, like I would be an even better worker and I would, you know, dominate through healthcare, but it was doing the exact opposite for me. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, some people just don't thrive in those types of situations and I was not taking away whatever lessons they thought that they were giving out. And so I actually, I quit, I quit, I gave them notice, but I, I gave it an advance notice so that they could find someone else. Um, for the position, but I quit without having anything else. And, you know, I live in New York City, so that's a pretty bold move. But I knew it's what I had to do. I mean, I, I absolutely knew that I could not, you know, deal with that environment any longer. And um, I told my manager, and they were shocked. They were like, I can't believe that you're leaving. I was like, have we been, like, involved in the same relationship dynamic for <laughs> the past two years almost? But I'm like really confused about why you're confused about why I'm leaving. Like, I just don't understand. <laughs> and I mean, like, really shocked. Like, please stay. I don't know why you would want to leave. And I was like, what? Like, what can we offer you? I was like, nothing. My freedom. Like, my sanity. <laughs> At this point, <laughs> nothing that you could give me would be worth staying here. And I, I felt bad that it got to that point. But it really was like, I don't care. You could offer me buckets of money and I would still say no. Like, I, I can't do it. Because I knew for my mental health wellness and like just for me to even prosper and anything else in the future, like I needed to walk away. And, um, you know, for me, that ended up being the best decision. Even though I walked away without another job, I ended up getting another one um, almost immediately after with the best manager. I think I appreciate my current manager more now because I've had such horrible managers in the past that like now my current manager is almost like the best person I've ever met. I'm like, don't leave me like this. This is so great. I don't understand because I waited so long to get someone who was, you know, um, the right amount that gives the the proper level of feedback, whether it be negative or positive, um, who is supportive, who's listening, but who also is more like a mentor and wants to see you grow in your career that's invaluable. And so for me, walking away was the best thing I've ever done because in corporate America, you can drive yourself crazy, you know, working for individuals like this. And turns out, I mean, they ended up leaving, but they ended up going on a whole new different path and are much happier. So I really think a lot of what that manager was doing to our team, you know, um, had been done to them previously in the past. And that's the only way they knew how to manage a team. And I think it's very real to internalize some certain things and, and, you know, kind of cause a ripple effect and that trickle down into how you behave with your staff because of the way that your previous manager behaved with you. So. Yeah, I have to, I have to agree with you on that. I had um, one of my jobs uh, was with a nonprofit and I had a boss who was, who was awesome. And I kind of came in as like a, you know, basic coordinator, you know, had no responsibilities, but he saw how I worked with the chapter staff and other people. So he basically was grooming me to actually become a manager and stuff like that. And I was, you know, the face of the department. I was the one that would, um, like most nonprofits, you know, we, you know, we had a small office in DC that dealt with government relations, and then we had a bigger office and this one, the, the office was down in Atlanta. So, you know, I was down in Atlanta a lot giving presentations to the to the staff or I was, you know, leading, you know, uh, conference calls and stuff like that. So it was it was mostly even though my title hadn't changed, he was working towards it. And um, yeah, an awesome opportunity and left. And the person who came in, who was a woman, um, 
didn't necessarily appreciate the fact that I, it was always like, well, we'll ask Kristen or we'll Kristen this, Kristen that. Now, mind you, I had a direct boss who was awesome mama bear who, you know, basically, you know, really pushed me to do stuff and step up and was actually very happy as, as an introvert was very happy that she had an extrovert who just, basically thrived off of, you know, getting up on stage and talking to people and training folks. And this new woman came in and she basically shut me down and I was to be like her secretary. Mm. You know, I had access to her, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, like I need you to call someone. So I'm going to be late for this meeting or, you know, why don't you have access to my, my calendar and stuff like that. And I mean, the previous boss, I mean, yeah, I did admin work and, you know, a couple of things I actually did it. You know, just because like he traveled so much as well, I actually dealt with like his receipts and putting that in because the, you know, accounting department was about to strangle him because, you know, he never did it. So I finally was like, just give it to me. But it was my choice, you know, and and so he did. But this woman basically, I mean, she just did not did not know how to handle me or the relationship I had with the staff down in Atlanta. So it was just one of those situations or the chapter staff across the, you know, across the country. So I remember when I gave notice, she just had this look on her face. Like she knew that the backlash was going to hit and, and it did. I mean, I was, I mean, I, I still have volunteers that, you know, had know how to reach me through, like LinkedIn or through Facebook who still, you know, reach out to me is like, you know, there was an open position in the new fandangled, you know, government relations office. And, you know, why don't you come back? And I'm like, yeah, no, thank, thank you. <laughs> like, I mean, granted she's gone. And I was like, and I always said like when, when she leaves, I'll think about coming back, but I'm so far above and beyond of what I was doing that I was like, no, that that's quite all right. That's, you know, I'm, I'm kind of out of that direct dealing with volunteers and chapter staff. Now I've, I've surpassed that in my, in my career. Thanks, but you know, no thanks type of situation. But, you know, I, you know, I, there was a couple other female bosses that I had that just, you know, I mean, you're being kind talking about, you know, maybe this was her way of pushing you to do better or, you know, or to, you know, to step up. But, you know, some of these bosses were just straight up like, no, they they made it harder for, you know, their their female um, employees to actually like their job and to want to come in. You know, I mean, I personally, I'm not a kumbaya, let's sit around and be best friends type of person. But at the same time, you know, um, at least have respect for the folks that you work with. And, you know, and, and, and stuff like that, or else, you know, the minute you lose your staff, you know, you lose your, you lose your office. There's, it's just complete chaos. Uh, so, um, it's really interesting because I kind of subscribe to the, the nuck if you buck religion, just like in general, like that's just my natural personality. And, um, when you're dealing with corporate people, it's a very uh, passive-aggressive nature, and I'm the type of person where if you send a shady email to me and we're in the same office, I will roll up at your desk and be like, oh, hey, can you clarify this email? Because I didn't really understand it. So um, that definitely made some people uncomfortable in the beginning because they just was not expecting me to, to do so. Um, and so uh, 
kind of trying to figure that out and figure out who I was within that space. Um, I interned in the summer, so I was usually in the office uh, my junior and senior year um, in college. Uh, but the thing about summer is you're there for about two months and then you're gone. Once it hit September and I'm like, oh, snap, I'm not going back to class. I really had that moment of, oh, this is this is this is forever or however long I want it to be. So how do I interact with people? Um, I think one of the moments for me that really kind of, I guess, my anecdote on how it really just kind of changed my world of corporate America was actually during uh, the Mike Brown verdict. Um, I really became personally very, very, very depressed. Um, and it was very hard for me to kind of get up every morning and kind of get dressed. It really broke my heart in a way that I wasn't expecting it to. Um, and so going through all of that and realizing that there are these people, um, and primarily white people in your office who don't understand that, you know, when it, after all of this work, after these Excel spreadsheets, after these presentations, I am so much more likely to get gunned down in the street, even in like my nice shoes or even in, uh, you know, my work appropriate dress. Like I'm way more likely to get gunned down than you. And that shit bothers you. It's stuff that you take home um, with you all the time. And it was really hard for me to to deal with that where. You guys, the amount of privileges you have to be able to go home or if NYPD stops you, you don't have to worry about um, being in danger or automatically being alert um, because of the color of your skin. It was really a hard pill for me to swallow. Um, I got very fortunate. There was one other black analyst. I'm not going to put her on blast like that, but she knows who she is. Um, she really became my rock. And when I found out she was about that life, we really held each other. Um, she left in the winter of last year, so I'm officially the only black analyst, but I text her, uh, almost every week. Like we co communicate all the time and I, you know, spill the tea and, you know, we talk about like office gossip and, you know, when she tells me stuff she's working on, I congratulate her. Um, but kind of finding that, that, that black sisterhood in work, it's so rare. And I think KB mentioned stuff about passion projects. Um, I'm so fortunate for, uh, black girl nerds. I'm so fortunate for Blavity um, because I was able to really find peace and really, it really, the work that I did with both you guys and Blavity really kind of helped deal with my depression that I was experiencing due to a lot of the cases in the news about police brutality. It really did because um, I was working with people that looked like me. I was working with people who understood where I was coming from and it, it really kind of helped me become a bit better in more well-rounded again. Um, so that's kind of my experience. Um, I agree. Um, I actually had similar experiences working in um, a corporate office and dealing with um, the Mike Brown incidents and just kind of anything that had to do with kind of the Black Lives Matter movement and not really being able to talk about it with coworkers because you you didn't want to, well, I know I didn't want to hear their views per, past the first time. Like the first time it became like a, a lunch conversation, I realized, oh, oh, we do not agree. And I can't keep looking you in the face if I'm going to continue to look to work here. Um, I can't know what you think about this. 
sucks because I'm going to hate you. Um, and also the passive aggressive nature of working in those offices and microaggressive behaviors and me being as blunt as I am and being a black woman, a lot of times what I say comes off as threatening or, or what's the, what's the word for it? Um, aggressive when I'm really just stating my opinion or I'm literally just saying this is how I feel about this or I'm saying something matter-of-factly but I'm not coddling you and learning how to navigate that because I've always you know I, I learned this is I've always been in myself in extremely white spaces um, since growing up being the only black girl in honors and AP classes, but I didn't have to check that about myself because, you know, I, who was, who was going to check me? Um, and my mom was a teacher. So who gonna whatever check you have you? To, yeah, who going to check me? Whatever you have to say to me, my mom can be here in two minutes and you can try and check her too. Let's, let's see how that works out for you. So kind of moving from that to, a, to, uh, an environment where my words, <laughs> what I say and how I carry myself, my job may be contingent upon that. I mean, obviously I'm not cursing people out or, you know, the stereotypical finger wagging, but even just saying something without a, without a smile or saying something matter of factly or a little too just, I said what I said is interpreted as, <laughs> aggressive because of who I am and what I look like and having just even in making friends with people or making, you know, making what coworker friends, however, whatever you call it, acquaintances um, and them getting to the point where they do feel comfortable with me and then get too comfortable. Mm. And, <laughs> and they're like, well, <laughs> then, then I become the, their avenue into blackness. They want to, <laughs> and having to quietly check those behaviors and having to still manage to produce and do my job while also trying to not <laughs> make too many waves, not make too many people uncomfortable with my existence. So it's this, you know, the the dual nature of being a black person in corporate America, just trying to exist and as black and exist as an employee is constantly a battle. Um, so and not too long ago, I actually told um, a story on Twitter that got way it got way bigger than I ever expected it to be. Like I, I was just telling a little threaded story and I guess so many people had had experiences like this, that it got retweeted so many times that it ended up in like newspaper, like, like it ended up so many places. And I had, anyway, the story I told basically was about um, when I was promoted at my last job, um, I moved to an area um, and <laughs> the guy that sat next to me um, saw my little my little dongle with my name on it and asked me how to pronounce it. And when I told him how to pronounce it, you know, he feigned ignorance and, you know, alluded to the fact that all well, my name's pretty 
Afrocentric, I guess. Um, I was named during the time when everybody was naming their kids Toyas and Tifas and and all of those things. So he looked at my name and was like, oh, well, I'm not even going to try because you know how those all those names sound. And I remember it was, that. Wait, yeah, that shit, was that was you? <laughs> That was, that was me. Dog, you were you. That was oh, like a black man. Twitter like legend story. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't know about this. I did. Yeah. I Con- this continue. Story. I I didn't no, know about this story. story. <laughs> but yeah, um, basically he he, I guess was trying to make a joke, but it, he was trying to do it very tongue in cheek, and I guess other people would have let it go, but. <laughs> not today not I'm not the one to just I I wasn't going to curse him out because there's always that underlying fear of you know let me not play into the stereotype and let me not lose my job over this bullshit that he's just put on my desk so um I just quietly checked him by like pretending not to know what his name was and calling him a series of different white guy names <laughs> for the next six months and like yeah, and other people found it hilarious too, and they started doing it because I mean he was he was kind of a douche to people in general. So, right. <laughs> um, but it it was something that became huge, and I I realized it was because so many other people had had experiences with this type of microaggression, with people refusing to pronounce your name your or refuse. Yes, just. It's it's not hard, especially with my name. Like it, it's pronounced like it sounds, like it's spelled. So it. <laughs> but I've always had people like that. Like, how do you say that? Ugh, that's so much, and it's it's really not. So just dealing with things like that, and it's just a lot. Rations. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you mind if I jump in here real quick? Not at all. Oh, no. Sorry, did you just reminded me it was. Um, I actually was at the the job um before my my boss left when President Obama first got into office and I was in charge of the um the inbox for all the um advocacy folks and volunteers and stuff like that and we put out an announcement saying how you know we look forward to working with the next administration and you know and congratulations and blah 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 nice press release and the nastiness that came in to the um into the inbox i mean there was one point and i'm i have i have a heart of ice nothing affects me and i was so upset i remember i remember my, my um boss actually came in and caught me pretty much almost in tears and he was like you know what we're going to start dumping these people and anybody that sent an obnoxious email like he's not my president and blah 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 he was just like, take them off the list. And I I go in there and, and do that. He's like, we don't want those people as volunteers in our organization. And I mean, which was, it was, it was nice, but that at that point between that and there was another big um, Medicare situation with healthcare that happened at that year that was so stressful that I actually, I took a break from, from um, working at voluntary health associations because it was it was it was just nasty. I mean, just the the folks. I mean, I can only imagine 
what it's like now with what it would be like now if I was in that position with everything that's going on, just because of just the vitriol that was that was coming was coming through at that point. I mean, I was I was lucky that I had somebody that supported me or at least let me left me alone of the situation. But it's 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 nasty. I don't understand why why folks and then they get butt hurt when you call them out about it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they really do. You know, I have a story about when President Obama got elected too. I was uh, working at a salon in North Georgia um, and I had a staff. I was working as a director of education. So my job was to train, retrain the 25 hairdressers that they had in uh, in cut color business. And um, I had a contract with them. So we're downstairs and we're having lunch one day. And I don't know why it is that white people think we all know each other. It's like <laughs> they, they really think we all know each other. So I'm sitting downstairs and the salon is owned by a husband and wife team. The wife has all the power. She has all the money. She's the one that started it. Then she trained him and brought him on board. So we're downstairs and we're having lunch. And, and, you know, any other day, of course, I'm the only black person that's there. And I have authority, you know, that the wife gave me. So we're sitting there having lunch. And he says, you know, um, what do you think about this Obama guy? He was like, um, have you talked mm-hmm. to him lately? I, I, I said, what, what, what do you mean? I said, are you speaking of Senator Obama or President-elect Obama? Because he had just been elected. And uh, he was like, you know, pardon me for saying this, but I've never been in a room with a real live black person before. Oh, and God. I, and I said, isn't that special? Well, what what made you tell me that? <laughs> what made you share that? With? I was like, how does it feel? Is it any different? Because <laughs> I'm really unlike any black person you're ever going to meet. Does it feel any different? And he was like, "No, I, I I think you're great. I think you're I think it's really amazing that you know ultimately we're all just real people, well, right? But you felt the need to tell me that it's the first time you sat down in a room with a black person before, mm-hmm. and you think I know President Obama so I can deliver him a message because we all know each other. Do we all look alike or do we all know each other? I'm trying to figure it out. But it's after the election and after the inauguration of President Obama." I, I don't know what happened. It was like something inside. What was that movie um, where they had the little chip in their head and, and something triggered it and it would just explode and kill them in an instant. It was like every white person's chip went off in their head and exploded. I could say what the hell I want to the black people. It's like, mm-hmm. no, have we met? You gotta say you gotta say no to coworkers just as like a general blanket <laughs> rule. That's been, that's been my life rule since I started work. Just say no to coworkers. Just I, at any juncture, do you want to? No, I no. don't. I don't want to hang. Hey, you want to talk about it? I'm moonwalking. No. I am a queen of like moonwalking out of uncomfortable situations <laughs> where I know oh, is this is y'all are setting me up for the okie doke and I I want no parts. I just say no, <laughs> no to coworkers. You moonwalk out. I'll make a scene. I like making an entrance and I like making an exit. If you're going to act a fool, I'm going to act a fool on my way out. I'm going to make my exit. You're going to know I was there. Oh, it's hard. It is so hard. And my the best advice I ever got from my dad in life was, is this the hill you want to fight on? There have been times in work, and I, I feel like all of us have experienced this, where it's like, yo, if I see you in the street, it's violence forever. Like, I will you can catch this thing. <laughs> Like, sometimes people get you to that point. And my dad, his advice, like, is this the hill you want to die on? It really resonated with me. Like, sometimes sometimes you can't, like, 
not every fight is worth it. Like, it's like, oh, is it worth me, like, not having a home <laughs> and not having, like, fucking water and light and things that. of that nature? Oh, no. But then sometimes I'm like, oh, nope, today's today. I, today's the day. I got time. And then sometimes you have to do what you got to do. But that, if you, making that, that, that <laughs> I conscious decision. Today. Yeah. Like, making that decision on whether or not, oh, I'm going to verbally give you this fade. It's going to be wonderful. And I'm going to feel good about myself. So you have to, you got to make those, those are really hard calls to make, but, um, sometimes it's worth it. Just a sick, like, satisfaction when I know somebody has been properly chastised that they oh won't answer gosh. back. Oh, it's, it's like, I, I feel gleeful about it. It's wonderful. I used to take such pride in walking out on jobs with all white people in it. I did. Cause I, I, I was like, whenever I would make some real money on the side, I would think that I could quit my job. So... <laughs> go to work and dare somebody to say something to me and you know for the most part I worked in peaceful places for the most part but um I took I took such pride in just not being where love was not I just I made a decision when I was 18 19 years old that I was not going to be in a place where I was not wanted because if I found money there I could find it somewhere else now that wasn't necessarily always true but I would take pride in walking off a job. I did not care. I've, and I'm trying to find that girl again, like inside me, because I've, I've become like overly responsible now. You know, when, when, when people say things like, oh, you're so articulate. I'm like, Emma? Mm. Uh, you know, I remember when somebody, um, Whoopi Goldberg, she said, um, she said, oh, you read so well. Where did you learn that? She was like, school, bitch. <laughs> I was like, really? <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> it's like you, 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 you really think that's a compliment. It's not a compliment. It's an insult. And I don't have a problem confronting it now. I dare you say something to me about my, the color of my skin. I dare you say something to me about the size of my butt. Because I've, I've learned to navigate those spaces by having to face it every day, especially in the Navy. I worked with men who had not been around women their entire careers. They've been on boats with other men. They leave their families for six, ten months out of the year, you know. So then they come back to shore and they have to work with these women who are often low-ranking women of color. And there would be three or four of us at a time. And we would go to work and open a door to get a pen and there would be a picture of a woman that was spreading. Or we would hear somebody say, nigga, 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 and in the next conversation in the next room. And you would see the black men in, in those little redneck conversations you would see the black men, their heads would lower and they would walk in the other direction as if it wasn't happening. Mm. You would see the women begin to shrink in their seats. And I really think it, 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 what it comes down to is whether or not you were willing to shrink yourself in order to be acknowledged. And we all got to work. We all have to work. We all have to make a living. Some of us have families and some of us don't. But to a certain extent, I learned that being willing to stand up for my own integrity was going to be what, what saved me. It wasn't going to be a person at a job. It wasn't going to be a supervisor that treated me poorly. It was going to be me standing in my integrity. And sometimes it does cost. It cost me a lot. But I will not be in a place where I'm not welcome. I'm not going to be in a place where I'm not wanted. Yeah, um, it's it takes me a while 
to get to that point too because my mother has said that I've had a smart mouth since I first started talking. So <laughs> getting into <laughs> getting into an environment where I have to be very particular in choosing my words and having people come to me and say all types of crazy white people mess like, oh, well, why is your hair like that? Well, does it... <laughs> Does it hurt? Well, I heard that you can't wash your hair if it's in dreadlocks and it's just no, you can't wash your hair. And then I and I have to like swallow those things and it starts to like it feels like I'm swallowing bile after a while. Mm. Like, you know, to just to just hold in the the verbal checking that I want to give people and I can't because not only is this a place of work and I'm also not going. My mother used to always say, "You're. They're not going to see what what you what you said. I mean, they're not going to see what they said. They're going to see what you said. Mm -hmm. So, no matter what she said to me, if I make this little white girl cry, <laughs> I'm the one. I'm the one that's in in danger of losing my job. So it's it's been a struggle, to say the least. It's been it's a struggle. <laughs> it's hard. It's like super hard. Um, one of the things that has helped me, and I'm gonna have to go back to KB's like original point about finding your passion. Um, when like the the large chunk of police brutality events were in the media, um, I started my own website. So I started a website called YoungCorporateAndBlack.com. Shameless plug. Um, but I, the, one of the reasons why was I felt because I was the only black analyst there that I had no one to speak to. And I had friends who were in similar boats in different fields, um, whether it be corporate or in higher education or whatever. Um, and so I started the website kind of to be a space where, um, people of different marginalized communities can kind of talk about what it's like to be the only one or the only few and what it's like to, uh, work in a very uh, primarily white workspace. Um, and I found a lot of peace in that. And um, it really helped me. Like when people would get on my nerves, I would just look at them and be like, I'm writing this down later. Trust me. <laughs> like it's, I, I was like, I will get it out in a, in a, in a healthy way. Um, but I think Karan is right. Um, sometimes you, you have to make that choice on, you know, where are your boundaries? Where, where do you stand? Um, I always told myself that I can't be in a space where you're kind of constantly chipping away at me. And mm -hmm. I feel as though I don't know who I am anymore. And I think the first six months of when I started working out of college, I honestly just didn't recognize who Joy was. Like, I did not know who she was and what that space meant. Um, and so I, you know, at some point I was just like, fuck it. And the lack of fucks were very, very present. Um, not necessarily <laughs> in my, like in my work delivery, but uh, it was definitely present in like my, my tolerance for everything. Um, I realized that sometimes what you can't verbalize, you can give a really good look, like a really good <laughs> side eye mm -hmm. in, the, in the back in the corner of the conference room when you know somebody said something that was not, it wasn't, it was like teetering that line. It wasn't like, blatantly racist but it was like diet racist and like they know what they're doing <laughs> did you say diet racist yes it's a diet racist like the start using that it's <laughs> true but it's so true you should watch the funnier die skit uh diet racism it's like a quite funny uh funnier die skit side note but it's like it's that it's that uh uh like 
essentially diet racism is like it has the it's supposed to like satisfy your craving as regular racism with like an aftertaste and like half the calories <laughs> and so you feel this way like when you're That's at the work <laughs> it's but it's so like it's so accurate like you feel it like you know like you didn't call me, you did not call me like a nigger like in my face but you are saying some things that are like you getting there. Like, the stereotypes are very present. Like, I, I, I see I see what you're putting down. So, how do you how do you deal with that? Um, it's the little things, like uh, talking about hair um, Ooh, and talking about what's in the news. Um, I remember when the ALS bucket challenge was happening around the oh, same gosh. time, like, the Mike Brown news was going on. And people, somebody asked me, like, oh, are you doing the ALS bucket challenge? I don't even do that in the first place. First of all, you know how much my hair costs to get done? That's what. I'm not messing it up. Like, it's just, like, things like that where you're just like, I, I don't know what to do. And so it's funny now because I, I, I have found, like, proper channels to get through it. But I was like, every time I got home, I was like, oh, I'm going to kill a white person today. Like, at my job, it's going to, y'all going to see me on the news. Nobody's going to hear my cries. Like, it's going to be rough. And you just kind of, like, you have to, to find, like, healthy channels to get through. It's rough. It's, it's really rough out in these, these uh, streets I, I, where black women aren't welcomed. It's Another struggle that I found that I have is um, being complimented or rewarded or or just being praised for things um, while they're also like talking bad about my people like, oh, Mm. you're just and you're just not like most of the other and, and trying to fight that, you know trying to fight every urge to be whatever it is like like oh you just speak so well and and now i want to i want to use all the abonics i want to say i want to say i want to drop every s and and use all the ain'ts and i mean i would i do that when i'm speaking with people i'm comfortable with and the fact that i don't talk like that to you means i don't trust you (laughs) (laughs) okay Can we talk about code switching and trust? Code switching. <laughs> yes. But, but just, um, you know, just having that happen to you, you know, because, and just feeling kind of like a traitor to, you know, if you do feel good about it, you, you feel like a traitor. And if you don't, it's, well, I mean, I have worked to get to this point. So, you know, what? How should I be feeling? So it's kind of odd. Have you guys ever felt like um, that corporate is like a breeding ground for like respectability politics to your point? Um, I started yes. feeling like that. Like, I feel like especially, you know, you got you, you ladies have way more degrees than me. But um, sometimes I, I felt like especially a lot in school and it definitely carried on in uh, work that I, I felt like I really was trying to get my like W.E.B. Du Bois on, like my talented tip on. Mm-hmm. Like I just swore that, you know, you, you kind of like feed into those comments where you're like, oh, you're not like other black people. Um, and it takes you, depending on where you're at in your stage of your life, I, I had to really work to really dismantle that very dangerous way of thinking. Um, because I realized that even me being a black woman, there's still a lot of privileges I've been afforded in my life that other people who 
are black women such as myself that never had that opportunity. Um, all things considered, uh, outside of like rampant sexism and, you know, institutional racism, uh, I've, I've been dealt a really good hand, um, and I really have no complaints. So it was important to me that even while I was in corporate to start really dismantling those really dangerous thoughts about why you think you're better. And when you feed into those comments, how it's really damaging to your psyche and it doesn't make you a good team player um, and team player, meaning like a team player in terms of being a part of the, the African diaspora. Um, so it was important to me that I want to be there for my fellow brothers and sisters. So I can't think that I'm better than them because I work at this cushy job and I make this X amount of money. It's, it's not fair to them. And it's certainly not fair to me. I'm not better, just cuter. <laughs> no, I do think I'm cute. That's very accurate. You should. You should. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying because also, you know, silence lets them think that it's okay to keep saying these mm-hmm. things to you as well. And it is one of those things where it's like, oh, well, she didn't say anything, so she must agree. And I can keep making these generalized statements about, mm-hmm. you know, blacks and and black women in the workplace and she basically agrees with me and now and now she can become my one my one black friend Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. yeah it does feel like an application for tokenship (laughs) (laughs) like oh oh so you're cool with me saying the the almost racist things okay well she's the one (laughs) i've i've i unfortunately have a coworker right now that um has made the mistake of saying a couple things in front of me and I've uh pretty much put her in her place but in a way that I think she's petrified of me so I'm enjoying it a little bit but <laughs> in a way that it shuts all conversation down um I was and and I you know I haven't done anything I haven't said anything to HR because I'm just compiling my little options because I know it's going to get to the point where she's going to say something and I'm just waiting to just throw out all my, you know, all my ace cards and be like, shall we go on or, you know, type of situation. I mean, I feel I love where I work and I swear to it's just it's one of those situations where thankfully, I mean, like for one example, we were in a meeting and she was making some comment about um, one of my coworkers was making a comment about how much she would want to see Idris Elba as, as James Bond. This, this coworker was a, uh, is a white woman. She's awesome. I love her. She was just saying, and I was talking to um, a couple of uh, people of color on at the end of the the um the table it was it was before a meeting would start and she made some snide remark about oh what would his name be jamal bond and i mm. and the thing Girl. is, is that i grew oh, up that. in i grew up in a family that we can have six conversations with six different people all at the same time and everyone's hearing everything that's going on so i i was just like um oh i'm sorry did i just hear jamal bond come out your mouth and literally you would have heard the record scratch like that and the one of one of the the brothers that was sitting at the table with me told me later that he was just he just wanted to get up it because he was laughing so hard because just the look of pure fear on her face and i and that's all i had to do was just say that and and i would be like you know what you need to stop and just ended the conversation and so it's one of those situations like i just i don't have anything to do with her 
I just deal with her on if she's involved with a project and I have to work with her, we just talk about the project. When she tries to be, you know, friendly, I walk away. Like, I'm done with you. Did, did you, did you sign this? Okay. Goodbye. Peace. I'm out type of situation. She, they, she knows now. I mean, that was, that was the final. I'm just waiting for another little microaggression to come from her. But I mean, I, I shut it down because I was like, I'm at that point. I think so, especially in my career where my, my work speaks for itself. I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not mean or rude to anybody. But you come at me with something like that, I'm going to shut you down and then just leave it at that. And and if anyone has any comments or anyone tries to like, like I said, if she if she ends up complaining to another another supervisor or to HR, I would just be like, look, this is it. This happened. This happened. This happened. And this happened. You know, I mean, you guys you guys know me. I don't I don't play this game and just and just leave it at that. And if you have an issue, not saying that they would, but if you have an issue, then it's time for me to start looking for a new job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You gotta hit her with uh, receipts like Anderson Cooper did old girl today on CNN. Ooh, yes. like, blew that like, up. Oh, you know what? Yeah. I have I had these screenshots from a year ago and <laughs> I <don't> remember <laughs> He is the king of receipts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, we're clocking in at 1.25. I do want to wrap it up. And for our listeners, feel free to leave comments in SoundCloud and let us know what your job experiences have been like for you. And thank you so much, Karan, Kristen, KB, Tora, and Joy, for really giving us your perspectives, your anecdotes and sharing with us just all of your experiences in the workplace it's it's been challenging for us but we we managed to thrive and overcome it and i'm really glad to hear your stories and there's a lot of healthy dialogue on this subject matter so i feel like this should definitely be a part two since each of us have a lot to share about this conversation so we'll definitely revisit this topic in the future and again thank you guys for for doing this show tonight Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this was fun. <laughs>